You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Lord, make your word our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your glory, our supreme concern. We pray this for the sake of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I want to start today by uh, telling you a little bit about myself and my family. Uh, First of all, my name, Andrew Reid. Spelled R-E-I-D, that's very important. Both names, Andrew and Reid, are solidly Scottish. The name Reid comes from a well-known Scot called Robert the red and if I was a bit younger you could actually see it in my beard because it was flecked with red. Robert the red, that's where I came from but my whole name adds an even more Scottish feel to it, my whole name is Andrew Sutherland Reid and the middle name tells a story. You see my middle name is the maiden name of my paternal grandmother All of my brothers bear the name Sutherland as their middle name. It was my parents' way of preserving the maiden name of our grandmother, my father's mother. And uh, for my parents, and particularly my, my father, this was very, very important. Now, in our contemporary society, we have lost a lot of the importance of names, although I suspect that those of you who are Asian background have held more than we, than the rest of Australia does. Uh, But in many cultures, names are very important. And uh, I know that, like I said, for Asian countries. A person's name is often their identity. However, sometimes more than than just about identity, a person's name is tied up with a person's place in the world. Um, It's linked to their deeds, their achievements, their reputation, their honour. Today, for example, we will remember one particular name. She played tennis and she won finally today. Um, It's linked to their deeds, like I said, their reputation. It's it's also linked often to progeny. Uh, After all, it's your descendants that will give someone's name an ongoing, your name perhaps, an ongoing existence in the world. Um, It's with that in mind I want to take a quick run through the Bible today. This is a long introduction to chapter 4, but we will get to chapter 4. If you think I'm not going to, just hang on in there, we will make it. Um, I'm going to do this because I think it will help us understand chapter 4. If I take this long run, then you'll understand chapter 4 much better. As we go, it will be helpful for you to have your Bibles open and follow with me, and I'm going to start with Genesis 2 and 3. Most of us know the story of Genesis 2 and 3 very well. Uh, God creates Adam and Eve, He acts with great generosity by providing them with this wonderful garden existence. In doing so, he shows what he wants for all humanity. The goal of God's creative activity is that humans live in his presence with the richness that that has. But humans, here, in Genesis 2 and 3, they want more. And because they want more, they disobey God. And in chapter 3, God punishes them. He also punishes the serpent who tempted them in the garden and lied about God. Humans are banished from God's presence. 
However, the story is not that bleak. There are hints of hope even in these first pages. And one of the strongest hints of hope is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Have a look at it. See what God has to say there, he says. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, you will strike his heel. That is addressed to the evil one. Can you see what's being said? The serpent has been an enemy of God's blessing for his people. He's led people away from him and away from his purpose for them. But, this, but a day is coming, says the Lord, when this will be reversed. And the reversal will come through whom? The offspring of the woman. They'll have their own back, as it were. An offspring of this woman will strike the head of the serpent. And so from this moment on in the Bible... There is a massive interest in offspring. In fact, it's not an overstatement to say that the book of Genesis is all about that issue. It's about producing offspring that will bring about God's purposes in God's world. Now, with that expectation, let me show you how this works. Turn in your Bibles now, a few pages, to chapter uh, chapter 12. Take a look at the first three verses of chapter 12. Great promises, three great promises are given to Abram. These are promises of land, of children and of blessing. Look at it and listen to it with me. The Lord said to Abraham, or Abram as he's called here, go from your land, your relatives, your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. So first we've had land, then we've had nation, then we've had blessing. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing and, those who, and I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Land, children, blessing. There is God's purpose for his world and that purpose remains now. God still wants blessing for all the earth and his means for gaining that blessing is in this one man and his children. Adam and his children. Now, I want you to flip over in your Bibles to chapter 22. Most of us know the story of chapter 22 of Genesis. Uh, Abram and Sarah have been struggling to produce children. And then finally, their child arrives. And his name? Isaac. And then one day, God tells Abram to go and sacrifice Isaac, his one and only son. Abram prepares for the event. Then in the nick of time... God stops the process and commends Abraham for his faithfulness and obedience. And in the process, God's messenger to Abraham speaks to Abraham in verses 16 to 18. Have a look and look at what he says. Categorically, God says, By myself I have sworn. This is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you. And I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the city gates of their enemies and all nations on earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. That's a phenomenal promise by God, isn't it? Do you see the references to the world and offspring? God is clear. His purposes are blessing for the whole world. And that means blessing is Abraham's, is what God will do through Abraham. 
That is where God is going in his world, blessing. That's his purpose. Now with that in mind, go in your Bibles to chapter 38 of the same book of Genesis. Things have progressed in the life of Abraham by this stage. Isaac and his wife have produced children with difficulty. They have produced two sons. Do you remember their names? Jacob and Esau. And we have been told that God's promises will flow through Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons and one daughter through his two wives and their handmaids. Later in Genesis we learn that the future ruler of God's people will come from one particular son. Do you remember his name? Judah. But can you, see, you can see what's going on, can't you? We started in Genesis by God having a purpose for all humanity. That purpose was focused in on children from Adam and Eve. In chapter 12 we find a further narrowing down and the focus falls on the children of Abraham and Sarah. Now it's focused even further. It's focused on the children of Judah. And that's where we find the foundations being laid for Ruth 4. So take a look at Genesis 38 with me and notice. In Genesis 38 verse 2, Judah takes a Canaanite wife for himself. They have children. And Judah finds a wife for his firstborn. The woman's name, Tamar. And Judah's firstborn, Onan, dies because of wickedness. Now in the ancient world, uh, there were systems in place to enable a man's name or his line to continue in history. And in the case of Judah's family, the obligation was that the second in line should sleep with Tamar and give her children. However, Onan avoids his obligation. God disapproves of what he does. And verse 10 says, he did what was wicked in the sight of the Lord and Onan pays for it with his own life. Anyway, Judah gets a bit worried about all of this. He's losing kids hand over hand, as it were, and he holds back his next son, Tamar, verse 11, from Tamar. Tamar then takes things into her own hands. This is family politics gone crazy, isn't it? She's committed to producing children and in her zeal she disguises herself as a prostitute and tricks Judah into sleeping with her. She becomes pregnant. And then Judah, well, he accuses her of immorality and calls for a harsh punishment. Tamar then reveals that Judah is actually the father. And in verse 26, Judah says, She is more in the right than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah. Now, let me say, I don't think that either Judah or the writer is commending the way in which Judah, Tamar went about the process of getting children. I don't think that's happening. However, both Judah and the writer do appear to be commending Tamar for her commitment to producing children. Not the mechanism, but certainly the commitment. In doing so, she's lining up with what God's doing in his world. Producing children for Judah is producing children for Abraham. Producing children for Abraham is producing children for Adam and Eve. And producing children for Adam and Eve has, it, has as its goal the one who will strike the serpent's head. And that will in turn accomplish God's purposes of blessing the world by bringing them back to God. It's been a long introduction to this sermon, hasn't it? Let's press on. Joshua 2 and 6 now. Flip in your Bibles to the book of Joshua. So we've got the larger background of our passage now. Let's move along in history to that time, the time of Joshua, and we're going to look quickly at Joshua 2 and 6. In this time, Israel has been rescued out of, out of Egypt. They're now a quite impressive nation. 
They're finally entering the land that God had promised to give Abraham. And the first city they go to is the city of Jericho. And we're told the story in Joshua 2 and 6. In Joshua 2, they send out some spies to reconnoitre. Reconnoitre. And the spies, the spies are sheltered by a prostitute. Do you remember the prostitute's name? Rahab. In Joshua 2, 8 to 14, she acknowledges that the Lord is the creator, the, God, the creator of heaven and earth and she lines herself up with him. She recalls how God rescued his people from Egypt. She asks that she might be shown the same extravagant love and kindness using the same word that is used of God in Exodus 32 and in a number of places in Ruth, she asks for, guess what, and guess what word she uses, she asks for surprising and extravagant kindness and love. In other words, she asks for chesed. That's right. Let me show you. I'm going to read chapter 2, Joshua 2, 12 to 14. Look at it in your Bibles and I'll put the right word, that word for God's extravagant love, surprising extravagant love, that word chesed. Let me read it to you. Rahab speaks to the spies. She uses these words. Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kesed to my father's family because I showed kesed to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters and all who belong to them and save us from death. And the men answered her, we will give our lives for yours. If you don't report on our mission, we will do kesed and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us the land. Can you see it and hear it? She asked that Kesed might be expressed to her and her father's house. This would be done by her father's line being preserved and the spies agree. Chapter 6 of Judges tell us that after the destruction of Jericho, she and her father's household are saved. And she, a foreigner and a prostitute, are amazingly integrated into Israel. You see, Rahab's acts as a woman who knows that God's purposes are tied up with Abraham's descendants. So whenever she has the opportunity, she lines up with God's purposes, sides with God, and God loves such people. Now, that's been a very long introduction to our passage today. Now you can flip over into Ruth again. But I still haven't quite finished, actually. I'll give you one more detail about Rahab. Now, it's not without problems, in biblical studies. However, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 says that there's a Rahab in the family of family line of Jesus. A Rahab in the family line of Jesus. She was married to a certain Salmon. Together they had a son. And the son's name was Boaz. Now, it could possibly be some conflation in generations and all of that sort of stuff, but what is relevant is that this is the very same Boaz who just happened, that's what the text says, to come along in Ruth 2. <laughs> just happened. And I can't help wonder if he learnt Kesed from the family story of Rahab. She knew that this was the nature of God. She had asked for it to happen. 
from the people of God. For, for it to, from the people of God. And she had experienced that from the hands of God's people. And so now perhaps when Boaz saw this young outsider needing help in his field on this day, he remembered the outsider in his family line. In any case, with all of this behind us, let's pick up the story in chapter 4. Flip to chapter 4. In chapter 3, Boaz utters an oath in the Lord's name that he would redeem her if if her other kinsmen would not. Let's check it out. So, Ruth chapter 4. Look at the first part of the chapter. It contains a court scene. It all happens at the usual location, the town gate. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Boaz goes up to the town gate. He sits down. The original language captures then what happened. Literally it says, And behold, the Redeemer was passing by of whom Boaz had spoken. Anyway, Boaz corners him in verse 1. He says, Come over here and sit down. The man does. And Boaz does. Boaz then outlines the situation to him. And I should point out that I'm not so sure that our translation has got it right here. I don't think Naomi is selling the land. I think she's asking the court to give its use over to the Redeemer until the next Jubilee year. Okay, that's just a minor thing, but I think that's what's going on. It's a lengthy speech. It goes from verse 2 to 4, and in the end, in verse 4, the Redeemer gives a very short reply, I will redeem it. That is, I will will take responsibility for it. Then Boaz explains the problem. And look at verse 5. It's like a punchline in this story. Boaz says, on the day... right? So this this has not been out in public up until now. They've gone through all this negotiation about land, very complicated stuff. And he then says, oh, 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 and by the way, on the day you buy the field of Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. Uh Uh-oh. You can see what's going on, can't you? Acquiring a bit of land would be welcome to anyone in Israel. But, however, Boaz is clear, it doesn't just come with Naomi. It comes with a Moabitess, Ruth. That in itself raises issues. She's a Moabitess. As Boaz spells out the implications of this for the Redeemer. With Ruth comes the obligation of raising up children to Elimelech through Ruth. With Ruth comes the obligation to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance in the land. And it's at that that the Redeemer becomes cautious because he doesn't want to put his own inheritance at risk, you see. And you can see that in verse 6, he says this, I can't redeem it myself or I'll ruin my inheritance. Take right of my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. There's a bit of tricky stuff going on here, isn't it? It'd match some of our law court stuff goes on. Now, we already know what Boaz will do here. Back in chapter 3, verse 13, he promised in an oath, using an oath, with the Lord's name in it, and he said to Ruth, this, stay here tonight, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. 
And Boaz takes the responsibility of Redeemer on in chapter, in chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. It's a public ritual involving a sandal. The, the act is made legal. And then there is in a public announcement by Boaz to all the elders and everyone present at the village gate. And it's made public. And then a pronouncement and blessing is made. Look at verses 11 through to 12. All the people who are at the city gate, including the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. And may you be powerful in Ephrathah and your name well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son, of Ta- the son Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give by this young woman. They have come an incredible distance. Let me tell you, if you knew Jewish culture, if you knew Jewish law, the distance they have travelled is enormous to get to this point. By the way, I want you to notice something in the blessing. Did you see it there? Did you see the reference to Tamar, who we mentioned earlier on? Did you see the prayer that through the Lord's gift of children, the house of Boaz might be like the house of Perez? Perez is the man that resulted from Tamar and Judah back in Genesis 38. (laughs) Then in the closing verses of the chapter, we're told the end result. Have a look at it. Ruth became the wife of Boaz. The Lord continued blessing them. The Lord made her conceive. And again, people rejoice and rejoice they might. After all, this child's name was Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse and that makes him the grandfather of David. Can you see what's going on here? In chapter 1, Ruth chose to align herself with Naomi and her God. In other words, she chose to align herself with God's purposes. And now Boaz has also chosen to align himself with God's purposes and they've done it by preserving Elimelech's name and in doing those actions God has accomplished much more. He's brought about his great purposes through David. And with that in mind, turn with me to Matthew 1. In Matthew 1 we're given the whole story in a genealogy. It's the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Saviour of the world, the genealogy of him who would defeat the evil one on the cross as he died. He is the one who is the son of David, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the one descended from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob. He's descended from Judah and Tamar. He is descended from Salmon and Rahab. That is just as he's descended from Boaz and Ruth. That is how Matthew begins his gospel. He records, did you notice how many of them are outsiders? He records outsiders that God has used in his purposes. There are prostitutes. There are people guilty of incest. There's a Canaanite woman. There's a Moabitess. But the story's not even finished yet. Turn with me to Matthew 28, end of Matthew's gospel. It tells us of the aftermath of the death of Jesus the Messiah. And the verse I want to concentrate on is 16 to 20 in that last chapter of Matthew. The disciples go to the location which Jesus himself had directed them to go to. The disciples 
go there, they see him, they worship him, and Jesus says these wonderful words. Verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Can you see what's going on here? Who is it that the disciples are to go to? Who, do they, who are they to go to? They're to go to all the nations. We are back in Eden. God's view has always been that the whole world would be blessed. This was what he had in mind from the very, very beginning. And in Jesus, he has accomplished it. So when the Lord incorporated those outsiders, such as Rahab and Ruth, he's just, he was just doing what he had always been on track to do. What he had always had in mind. And when Rahab's son Boaz shown kindness to Ruth, he was part of God's purpose that would eventually bring all outsiders in. Isn't our God incredibly wonderful? Are his ways not beyond understanding? Is he not worthy of worship? And with that said, and that picture of our God, I want to close today's talk by just reflecting a bit on what has gone on. See, I want to push it home to us today. You see, I wonder if you've noticed something over these four talks. Oh, apart from Kassed that I've taught you, I wonder if you've noticed something. Did you notice that there is a singular lack of the miraculous? It's awesome, isn't it? When we read this book, we do know God's at work. But the people who are active in this book did not. They were just simply, simply making choices about being godly. They were deciding, we'll line up with what God wants. And through their choices, God was at work. Through their choices, he brought about his great purposes in Christ. And friends, let me tell you, that that's what living the Christian life is about. It's not about the spectacular. It's not about flashy and glossy things. It's about normal people like you and me making choices. It's about us making decisions about will we line up with God and his purposes or not. For example, it's about marrying within the Christian faith. It's about deciding to rear our children as Christians. It's about deciding to work it out with our spouse when we feel like throwing in the towel. It's about acting ethically in our workplace. It's about sharing the gospel with a neighbour. It's about sharing our wealth with the impoverished. It's about praying for peace in those trouble-stricken parts of the world. It's about remembering those in prison for the sake of the gospel. It's about showing love and generosity to everyone we meet. 
It's about getting out of bed each morning and giving the day over to God as his day, not ours. With that in mind, I'd like to finish with some words from Paul in Titus chapter 2. So flip in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. I think these words in Titus 2, they're favourites for me. They represent a a manifesto as to how we should live in this current age. Listen to them carefully, memorise them, follow them even more carefully. Here they are, Titus chapter 2, 11 to 14. The Apostle Paul speaks the word of God to this people and he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny, un- to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live a sensible, righteous and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. For he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse us for himself, a people for his own possession, eager for good works. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for this story of people in the normal run of life and the little snapshot it has for us of what it means to be godly. We thank you that your grace has appeared bringing salvation to all people. And as we wait, Father, as we wait for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus the Christ, please help us to be people who live as live for him and who are eager to do good works. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.